Well, welcome to our ninth week of studying Romans. This week, we're in chapter 8. And before we begin, would you please join me in a word of prayer? Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to meet together by opening the word wherever we are. Lord God, keep those things around us that might distract us quiet. Silence our heart. Make our heart, mind, and soul be towards you for the next few minutes as we look together at your word in the 8th chapter of Romans. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we launch into this week's study, it is good to remember that Romans chapter 7 ends with a reminder of our sinful nature in which we are held captive by the law of sin. I think a good way to look at that is to think about gravity. The law of sin is more than just our action or things that we choose or things that um, that might happen. It's The law of sin is like gravity. It's all around us. It permeates us. We don't control it. It's there. And that's what the law of sin is. It's everywhere. And that's what Paul is referring to. He unpacks the reality of our sinful nature by using his himself as the example of one who before knowing Christ was doomed as if he had just been pummeled in a ring, beat up by the sinful nature. But thanks be to God for chapter 8, which gives us these words, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That starts the chapter. It's just a wonderful, wonderful time. So I'm going to look at my notes a lot, and I just pray that you would look with me at, at the notes as we walk through this together. This chapter is tightly woven, and it bridges the first 11 verses, contrasting with that chapter 7, where it's, boy, the law of sin, it's around us, our sinful nature, there's no hope for us, we really need hope, and then it talks about the new life we have in the Spirit indwelling us. It should be noted that in chapter Eight, Holy Spirit or Spirit is used 21 times. Now, all the chapters preceding up to chapter 8, five times you hear about the Spirit. And after chapter 8, only nine other times. So you could call this chapter the Spirit chapter. As we look at some of the broad strokes, let's look at the work of the Spirit. The first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 17, we see the Spirit of God as an advocate for believers. The second half, which is verses 18 through 39, the Spirit transforms us into the image of Christ. We're going to look at that today. And the Spirit frees us from condemnation and alienation. So what God achieves in Christ Jesus, and these are the first four verses, and as we move through this, uh, we will look at the way in which Paul has set out the difference of those who are captive to the law of sin versus those who are set free in Christ Jesus. So again, no condemnation brings a new chapter, a chapter, and it begins with the words, therefore, which means think about what you've read, think about what, you've, what you have heard me say. Therefore, there is now no condemnation in Christ. Christ can do what the law could not. The law reveals sin. It aggravates sin. 
and condemns both sin and the sinner. The language used reflects an already accomplished vocabulary when it says there is now no condemnation. We're not waiting for this. It's not in the future. It is now, and it continues. It's ongoing. Through Christ, we're no longer a prisoner of the law. I was from chapter 7, verse 23. We are free from a law of sin. Sin affects us, but it does not hold us as it did not before we were freed in Christ Jesus, or as it did before we were freed in Christ Jesus. Sin no longer has authority over us. Let's think back to that law of sin as gravity. If you went up into space, gravity would no longer hold you. You would be floating around. You would have freedom. When Christ comes into our lives, that law of sin, the gravity that just is all around us, holds us down, no longer contains us. We are set free. God sends his own son to accomplish this. What failed in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there are more than 40 times when God either sends something or someone to try and bring the people back to God. Sending his son is the center of reality, not humanity or the world. It is Christ who does this. Thanks be to God. Now, God sends his own son to accomplish what had failed in the Old Testament. And then Christ comes not just as an idea or as a, um, a, a thought or as a hope or as a promise. Christ comes in flesh and blood and the likeness of humanity. And when we say likeness, we mean he is every part. He is flesh. He is blood. He is present, but without sin. There is no sin in Christ Jesus. If you look at Philippians, excuse me, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself. So docetism, which was very popular, would say, oh no, Jesus wasn't really here in the flesh. It's um, because all flesh is bad and Jesus is all good. Christ comes to redeem the whole person. I think that's one of the greatest gifts that we have is that Christ comes to redeem all of us, not just a part of us, but everything, our whole being. So let's now turn to the next part, to verses 5 through 11. This is the power and authority of the Spirit. Paul is contrasting again from chapter 7, the two powers living in the flesh, corrupt and decaying world, or living in the spirit. Thirteen times in the first uh, 13 verses, Paul sets flesh and spirit in contrast, orientation to a world which is dominated by rebellion and sin. God infuses the spirit in us so that we have life and peace rather than death and hostility in a world to come. God gives us the Spirit so that we are not alone. We have life in the Spirit. We have peace in the Spirit, even as we are in the world. We have reassurance that we, as believers, are not in the flesh. 
with the Spirit of God living in us, and we demonstrate that presence by changing how we live in our lives, both now for Christ and not for ourselves. That is to say that because the Spirit indwells us, we live life differently, and we have the power to do that. Thanks be to God because of what Christ has done. The Spirit gives this to us. The Spirit does this by the indwelling. The Spirit is the answer to the struggling Paul. This is what he's written about in the previous chapter. So much do we struggle until we have that Holy Spirit indwelling us. Now, the truth of the Spirit is the next part, and this is verses 12 through 17. If we have the Spirit, we are not captive or in debt to sin. If we have the Spirit, we are neither captive nor are we in debt to sin. The transformation of ourselves and our relationship to the world brought about by the Spirit is simply that any obligation we may have had to a world dominated by flesh, rebellion against God, has been annulled. Our obligation is not to that world, but to the new world in which the Spirit has put us. To honor the new obligation means life as followers of the way of the flesh means death. We have life in the Spirit. The Spirit brings us into relationship with God as children of God, adopted into the family and now called Abba. I absolutely love this. Now, we use that word Abba and we think Daddy. Uh, the only time I ever called my father Daddy was when he became a grandfather. It's always Dad to me, um, or Father, if I really wanted something, or if I also wanted to honor him. But the word Daddy is an extremely affectionate term. The Abba comes with that kind of affection, and so that's why we use the example of Abba meaning Daddy. When my father became a grandfather, and he's a Southerner, he became Big Daddy. And my father was a tall man, a broad-shouldered man, a big man. And so Big Daddy really fit who he was and his personality. And in fact, our kids uh, loved that name for him and used it all the time. But it's that intimacy that we have when we have a relationship with God through the Spirit. What a great gift. We are also heirs with Christ. Paul uses the word if in that to help us understand that we participate in both the glory of being God's children and in the suffering because of our new life in Christ. Sin deprived humanity of God's glory, but God restored his glory by the cross of Christ to fallen creation. Both suffering and glory are the believer's inheritance with Christ. Sometimes I think that's hard for us to grasp. We want that great by and by now. We want that, that place that's perfect now. And all of us know it's not there. But with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit who is with us, we, even as we suffer, know the glory. And we embrace that because we know that truth, that 
the Spirit brings us into relationship with God. We are brothers and sisters with Christ and heirs with Christ. And that means both the glory and the suffering. Let's now turn to the second part, beginning in verse 18. I consider that the suffering of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. So there again you have it is that there is struggle going on because Christians were persecuted. We don't live in that environment where we are, but if you are watching from somewhere in the world and you know what it is to be persecuted, you are shaking your head, yes, yes. The suffering of this present time in comparison with what is to come. We can handle this. We can do this. So there's renewal and hope. Our future supersedes any suffering we are currently experiencing. Beyond the reality of living in a fallen world, the Christian is called and experiences suffering because of their life in the Spirit. Oftentimes people think, oh, Christianity is just a, a crutch. It's a way for you to escape all that's going on. Well, actually, as Christians, we are called to be like Christ and suffer with Christ for the sake of the gospel. We make a mistake when we assume our experiences that the world is one that the world experiences also. We do not suffer the way many Christians in other parts of the world suffer. Let us not forget that it's the whole community of Christ. And if our brothers and sisters are suffering, we're suffering. We're suffering with them. What we experience now, we will experience in the second coming, in the future. The future redeems the whole of God's creation. Paul puts together, he intertwines the fate of humanity and the fate of the universe. Kind of begins with Adam's and in chapter 3, 7, the fallen Adam, the fallen world. We're all subject to sin now. We're cursed. The ground is cursed. The whole world is cursed. But Christ is coming and restoring everything in Christ's return. No longer will there be any curse. You see that in Revelations 22, verse 3. Creation itself suffers from original sin. We are promised renewal, and that does bring us hope. Pains of childbirth refer in this passage not to death or decay, but to new birth, the transformed order. And again, from Revelations 21.1, often we read this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the heaven, for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Everything is becoming new. And we groan. Holy Spirit groans inwardly. We wait eagerly for that redemption. We have a glimpse. It's both here, but it's not yet. And so we remain faithful. Hope requires patience. Hope really requires patience. The word used here for patience is associated with perseverance and endurance. 
It seems that as Christians, we do not lose hope even when facing trouble and suffering for faith. And the reason why is because of that hope. I had a roommate in college uh, and we would say more than anything else, she had the gift of perseverance. She was a excellent student, but boy, did she study hard. And if she ever failed, it was always failing forward because she had hope that she would learn the material and she would get through this. And in a real sense, our perseverance is the hope. Yes, we will get through this. We know that. There is an end in sight. However long that takes, God will be with us and we will get through this victoriously. That's our hope. That's our promise. Hope requires the patience that I talked about. We turn in verses 26 through 30 to prayer and promise. The Holy Spirit intercedes in prayer for us. We walk and we talk about intercessory, not walk, we talk about intercessory prayer, praying on behalf of others. Here is the ultimate prayer warrior, the Holy Spirit who knows how to pray for us with sign, with feeling, with such deep love and care and emotion, with the heart of God. God knows our hearts and sees how the Spirit intercedes for us to do the will of God. God's promise to the believer is assurance of his presence in our future. God foreknew, that is, God predestined, called justified, glorified. God foreknew, God predestined. That meant it's God is in control of us, folks. God is the one who calls us. God is the one who justifies us. God is the one who is going to be glorified through us. That's what we can count on. We're called family. Once again, brothers and sisters, peers, peers with Christ. The New Testament usually refers to Christians as believers, disciples, slaves, apostles, sheep, other words such as those. But here we are called family. That's who we are in Christ, part of that family. Peers, brothers and sisters with Christ. The battle is Christ. The battle is God's, and we will be victorious in Christ. And that's the last section we're looking at, verses 31 through 39. God is for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is present, active, and engaged with us. Oftentimes, Romans 8 is used for Trinity Sunday, kind of halfway through our, our Christian calendar. It's um, in some traditions, it's on Pentecost Sunday. Others, it's the week after Pentecost for us Protestants. Um, but it's Trinity Sunday because here in chapter, and, and we draw often from chapter eight because here we have a perfect example. God is for us. Who is God? God is the Father. God is the one who is the maker of heaven and earth, almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. No one can compare. No one comes close to the power of God who is for us. Christ, 
the Son. The Son is predestined to be for all people the one great sacrifice, the one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And the Holy Spirit, in verse 26, the Spirit helps us, prays for us, intercedes for us, assures us. So when we come to this passage in 31, what are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who can stand up against God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are on our side working for us? God is present, is. God has always been, is present, always will be. And for an advocate working, God is not just sitting up in heaven waiting. He is engaged for us. And us is a collective community of individual Christians brought together. We are called family and we stick together. Paul now presents three in this. Three, this is the first one is, um, if God is for us, who could be against us? Who will bring a charge against God? Who will condemn us? Who will separate, it, separate us from the love of Christ? The one who has the power to accuse or condemn us. God or Son are in fact the ones who protect us. Say it again. Who's in a position to condemn? Only God and Christ. And they're the ones who are protecting us. We have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Would be good to remember that. And then Paul concludes that we will be victorious in all things through Christ our Lord. We will face trouble, but we will remain with God through Christ, and nothing, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How often have you gone to a memorial service or funeral? And this scripture is used, the last few verses of Romans 8. Because when all else fails, when our hearts are broken, we are missing those who have gone. And we think, oh Lord, where are you? We have this assurance, nothing will ever separate us from the love of us, of God. When we are in trial and tribulation, when it seems like the world is imploding about us, we know nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We use this oftentimes also in worship for our affirmation. I have to end today by quoting the last few verses so familiar to all of us. So please indulge me. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. May it be so in your life, today and always. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today. Bless you. And as you meet together with others and study the word, may God fill your heart 
with the assurance that he will always be with you. Amen.